You want to know? I'll tell you. A tune killed my brother. A tune? No. That's right. become the first country in the world to shut down national broadcasts on its FM radio network. From now on, all the state broadcasters' radio programs can only be heard via DAB, or digital audio broadcasting. The Scandinavian country made the final switch to DAB on Thursday, when the last FM signal was switched off in the counties of Troms and Finnmark. Question, where is all of this heading? What does it mean? country working forward. I see that they need to try to go ahead and work out a seven or eight trillion dollar cut on the debt, which Tom Coburn uh, gave them a book to. He come up with a trillion, a trillion or a trillion and a half dollars, and it's not stimulus. They need to reinvest in American jobs. I come from Greenville, South Carolina.
uh, Midtown Manhattan in Times Square. And it did spread globally. One of the photographs that we showed you earlier, this from Taipei, Taiwan, as demonstrators there uh, marched throughout the city. And Monty has this point on our Twitter page saying those holding e economic power could have maintained the grip on it if they decided to share. The implosion will make their money worthless. Nick is joining us from Inverness, Florida. Good morning. Welcome to the conversation, Nick. Independent Line. Good morning, and thank you for C-SPAN. Um, boy, you know, that last caller is part of the reason why I think this whole demonstration is going on. Uh, his information is clearly, you know, uh, that message which is being put out by News Corp and Fox News. Good afternoon. I'm filling in for Olivia. My name's Adrian. Maybe you don't know Olivia. Maybe it's all the same to you. Doesn't matter much, does it? I used to sit in this chair every week, Thursdays, 6 to 7 p.m. Maybe it was 7 to 8. It's hard to keep track of these things after a while. I did a little travel show called The Blind Tourist. Collage number. Your basic frantic medley of pop music and field recordings. Nothing spectacular, but it was my little hour every week. A good excuse to think. To lose myself in a kind of endless archive of other people's travel stories and videos. I learned a lot during that time. Like how half of the terrestrial radio stations that also have online feeds are some kind of religious organization. Or how like Norway is eliminating the FM transmitted radio signal altogether. You know, I'm not an information person, so it's amazing I can even come up with those things. I don't retain it. Specifics all pool together in my head like a, like a thick soup. Indistinguishable ingredients. That's fine with me. Sometimes I think information has a way of sticking in my brain like ravioli. It all bakes together into something else entirely, some other kind of idea. But good luck separating the tomatoes from the cheese. I get tired when someone starts telling me something, especially something full of facts, new things they learn, new information. I only hear what I want to hear from it. I take in the bits that will taste good in the ravioli, so to speak. Anyway, for the next couple hours, I want to present you with a story that has a surprising lack of credible information. I think it all starts about 10 years ago. That's when I started hallucinating at night. Small stuff. I'd wake up and see what looked like half a spider on the wall, or there'd be a cat in the room with me. Mind you, I didn't have a cat. Sometimes I see cartoons in the trees outside of my window, or in the shadows on my wall. I lived in Chicago at the time, in an apartment behind the Congress Theater, an apartment that looked like a little house that had fallen on top of a pizza place. To get inside, you had to walk through the pizza kitchen. It was a big place, the apartment, but my bedroom was barely big enough for a full-size bed and a small dresser. I paid $300 a month, worked at a urology office during the day. The window in my bedroom was above the dumpsters, and I could look out above them, down the alley, at all the dumpsters down the block. Sometimes I'd see a fat little white dog walking around by the dumpsters next door. It lived in the pawn shop beside the laundromat. I liked that dog. I liked that apartment. I felt connected to that apartment. Like 
it knew me somehow. Like it breathed with me, or maybe it was me that was breathing with the apartment. It's, it's hard to know. A lot of time between me and that apartment now. My bedroom had a drop ceiling. Those flimsy rectangle tiles that rest across an equally flimsy plastic lattice. When the windows were open or the pressure changed in the apartment, the whole thing would lift and expand like a huge inhale and a huge exhale. It would release down into the room. Like I said before, the place would breathe with me. Anyway, this would have been about 2011 when I lived there. And about 2011 when my dreams started coming out of my sleep. The first time it happened, well, I was a kid. Couldn't have been more than six or seven. I was falling asleep in my old bedroom. The little bed was pushed up against the window. A streetlight outside would cut through the curtains with this alarming intensity. The light bisected the bed, cutting my body in half like a magic trick. I lay there trying to fall asleep, staring at that little strip of light across my middle. One night as I stared, I started to see a flower growing just on the other side of the little light line. I didn't want to blink or move. I knew it wasn't real, but it was so vivid, it was so clear, it was soft. I stared, and I stared, I don't know how long time passed, it felt like forever, but I'm sure it was just a few seconds. I knew if I tried to touch it, it would be gone, but eventually I tried anyway, and yeah, I lost it to whatever part of the universe or my mind had created it. Nothing like that happened again for a while. Not at least until I moved to Chicago, became an adult. Small things here and there when I first got there, different apartments had different qualities to them. A bug that wasn't there, a sound, an occasional phantom touch, the feeling of the wind when there was no breeze. But that apartment, the one above the pizza place, there was a different quality to it. Something else was happening there. Fog moved in on us 
there, but I just want to show you this tree. It's a very unique tree. And Pearl and I happened to be over at the Pinnacles National Monument. We saw a tree like this, and I didn't happen to have the camera with me at the time. And I'm hoping I'll be able to pick the picture out here, but the trunk of the tree is full of holes that are caused from the uh, woodpeckers. What they do is they stuff the hole with it an acorn and then save it for later on in the, uh, in the winter. Well, we're down here in the beautiful Palm Springs Preserve. And I'm just scanning around here. And yesterday they were out picking the, the dates. And you can see them up here. And what they do is they take those bags off the dates and they cut them down. And the campers are allowed to pick up any of the, the droppings, you might call them. Plus negative ten 
simply 273.5 minus 10.6. And that temperature in kelvins is actually 262.5 kelvins. So there's that problem. And I'd like to do one more problem before we finish up here. And uh, this problem says, convert negative 40 degrees Celsius into degrees Fahrenheit. So remember, uh, our formula from going, for going from Celsius to Fahrenheit is just sort of the opposite of, you know, when we went from Fahrenheit to Celsius. And remember that the uh, degrees Fahrenheit is equal to the temperature in degrees Celsius times 9 fifths, 9 degrees Fahrenheit over 5 degrees Celsius plus 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So all we have to do, I'm not going to write in the whole step again, but all we have to do is just plug in negative 40, wherever this degree Celsius is, negative 40 degrees Celsius. And if you um, put this into the calculator and do it yourself, which I highly encourage, I don't want you to just mindlessly watch me as I do it. I'd like you to work this out for yourself. But if you do this, then you'll actually get the Where is all of this heading? What does it mean?
man and handling your What love got to do with it? Ask SV, it's all bull. You know what love is. Say it with me one time. You know what love is. Be on some love. You know what love is. Be on some love. You know what love is. That love and masturbate. No need for that. And get down, rap, say word. That's what I want more than anything else, ideas. I didn't kill her. Why should I go back to San Quentin for the rest of my life if I didn't kill her? I wonder what he could do with your face. Who? A friend of mine. Knows his stuff. How much would he want? How much he got? A thousand. That's all I've got. You take a couple of hundred. Yeah. You keep after me from then on. No, he's a friend of mine. What's your charge? Nothing. I've seen him work. He's great. I wouldn't know my own mother after you get through with her. How long would it take?
that's really our question. Where is all of this heading? What does it mean?
It's an interesting uh, situation because we do believe there will be a rapture. I mean, all these things are in the Bible, but it's also very clear that no one knows the day and the hour. So when someone comes out and says they know the day and the hour, we, we know it's false. And uh, But that doesn't stop people. I mean, this isn't the first time this has happened. People get fooled all the time.
It was the summer of 2011. I was starting to get headaches around that time. Deep, unimaginably painful, overwhelming headaches. The kind of headaches where there's really no thoughts in you except for the pain. I didn't know it then, but these headaches would eventually bore their way into almost every aspect of my life. They would take control of everything. But at that time, they were just anomalies. Terrible, freakish, independent, and isolated occurrences that had nothing to do with each other. There was something else, something more sensational happening in my head that year. It was a hot night that summer, 2011. No breeze. The box fan that I stuffed in the doorway wasn't doing me any good. It was just blowing hot air around the room. I was in and out of sleep, mostly out. At some point, I'd managed to shut my eyes, to lose some time. When I opened them again, it was still dark, still hot, and there was something on the wall. Something big, something moving, something I didn't trust. I stared at it for a minute. It looked like, like half a spider. That's really our question. Where is all of this heading? What does it mean? And no matter how much I focused and unfocused my eyes, or moved my head or blinked or anything, I couldn't really get it to be in focus, to be clear. I couldn't really see it right. I stood up in the bed, moved, kind of scurried across the wall. Now my bed was pushed up against that wall and all my sheets and blankets were pushed up against the edge of the bed. I didn't want that bug getting in those blankets. I had a feeling something was off about this thing, like maybe it wasn't real, or if it was, it was definitely something I'd never seen before. I started to move towards it. I was going to knock it off, and as I did it, it started to run faster. So I lunged at it. My hand hit the wall, almost exactly where I thought it should have been. But instead of hitting a spider, I ran my hand into an old nail been there to hold up a painting at some point, but there wasn't a painting there now, so instead I just pushed my palm with full force to the edge of a nail in the wall. The spider was gone, or maybe it was never there. At that moment, I kind of woke up, like out of a daze in a way. I had been fully awake, or so I thought, but I had a, a level of lucidity now that I hadn't had before. I pulled my hand off the wall, and with it, a little piece of skin came off and hung there on the nail. I'd see that half spider over and over again for the next couple of years. My name's Adrian. WFMU. This afternoon, music, sound, spaces, stories of uh, dreams and noir. Under my voice now, I picks twin number seven. 
Before that, Nocturne Data by Uwa Awa? I'm not sure how to say that. Before that, Black Sunday, Federale, from the uh, soundtrack to A Girl Walked Home Alone at Night. Before that, Slum Village, The Look of Love, and Biosphere, Chuck Hung, and we opened with Angelo Battlemente, Dance of the Dream Man from Twin Peaks. people saying that they don't understand what the movement is about. That the people that's occupying Wall Street, you don't understand what the movement is about. It's about it's about them not having uh, privileges of the same care, the same amount as other people on Wall Street. Right now, I bank at Bank America, and they want to charge me $5 to get, use my own money, to use my debit card. $5 to use my debit card when they're sitting on a bunch of money. And I don't understand why is it that they want to charge this amount of money. Here's the point with the people that occupy Wall Street, is that they want equality. I want equality. Everybody wants equality. And the Republicans call in talking about socialism. They're the ones that create socialism. They're the ones that drove the bus off the cliff. And they want to blame Obama. Obama doesn't run the country. Obama runs the White House. The White House can't do anything if the Republicans don't agree. Johnny, thanks for the call. From the Japan Times, this headline, again, demonstrations in New York. This is called Occupy Tokyo, the English version of the Japanese newspaper. A number of references to Dr. Martin Luther King on this weekend in which the dedication ceremony will take place along the mall here in Washington. Where is all of this heading? What does it mean? Kathy is joining us from Michigan. Good morning. Welcome to the, the program. Oh, good morning, Steve. Steve Um I think the movement is, is, um, is good for the country and the world, but I want to bring in, you know, Martin Luther King's um, speech and, and the fact that when I was working a unionized job this last school year, it was the first time... Uh, we received Martin Luther King's birthday off. I was not paid. None of the aides, the teacher's aides were paid. Bus drivers were not paid.
We're in the middle, the beginning, maybe the end of some convoluted series of tales and dreams and fears. Noir, neo-noir, neon-noir. This time, this afternoon, is less about making sense and more about, I don't know, a curious mind? Wandering spaces? A vibe? I think I always liked noirs because they remind me of, uh, of dreams. The worst parts of dreams, though. Dreams that aren't quite nightmares either. I dream a lot about trying to figure things out, trying to work something out, but I never quite get to it. I never quite figure out what it is. It's not so different than waking life, I guess. We just heard Klein, uh, Enough is Enough. And that other sound you hear is uh, Yana Windrin's Energy Field. When I was young, trying to learn to lucid dream, I, I really wanted to be able to hear things and see things that you couldn't hear or see with the naked eye, naked ear. Oh. Yeah, no wondering. It's good for that in waking life, too, not just dreams. And we're going into Missy Mazzoli, Tooth and Nail. It's WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org.
suddenly say, wow, I'm having a dream. Well, you know, uh, it is a learnable skill. Uh, certainly the place to start is with dream recall. You've got to increase your dream recall, which is something that you can, uh, we believe that any normal person can do with training. It takes practice and the intention. So the first place to start is to say, I'm going to try to learn to remember my dreams and I simply have to care about them. It sounds like you may have a busy enough life that you just haven't, you know, when you get around to bedtime art you say, oh, forget anything else, I'm just sleeping. Uh, it takes some extra energy that has focus and attention left over to go into sleep with an idea, something you want to carry out. You want to recognize that the dream happened. Actually, uh, Stephen and, uh, and Dominic, I must tell you, I prefer the little slice of death uh, experience. In other words, when I go to sleep, I really prefer going to sleep. On the occasion where I have had dreams, they've been very intense. And when I awaken, I find that I actually still feel tired because I was so gosh darn busy in my dream. Absolutely. Uh, understood. And, and it's, the, the trouble is when you're in a dream and you don't know it's a dream, it takes a lot more work. And you're trying to do things that just don't work out. Uh, it's, it's very common that uh, for most people that they're not, they don't know they're dreaming. The typical kind of emotion that goes with the dream is a kind of a gentle irritation or... Uh, That's right. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. But if you realize you're dreaming while you're dreaming, that anything's possible in any imaginable dream, now, now that opens up uh, uh, well, oh. your imagination. Dominic, would you like to
got this guy in Germany, Fritz something or other. Or is it? Maybe it's Werner. Anyway, he's got this theory. You want to test something, you know, scientifically. How the planets go around the sun, what sunspots are made of, why the water comes out of the tap. Well, you got to look at it. But sometimes you look at it, you're looking changes it. You can't know the reality of what happened or what would have happened if you hadn't have stuck in your own goddamn schnoz. So there is no what happened. Looking at something changes it. They call it the uncertainty principle. Sure, it sounds screwy, but even Einstein says the guy's onto something. Science, perception, reality, doubt. Summer kisses Where is all of this heading? What does it mean? Six fifty-two a.m. I'm in the carpeted kitchen of my rented room, 
staring across the courtyard at this man. Let's call him Victor. Victor is alone in his apartment and he's dancing. The windows have misted in from the corners, but I can see his silhouette. Victor is not a great dancer. There's too much of his person in his movements. The first place he bends is always at the knees and never at the shoulders. He stretches his arms or pushes his palms out, leans back and faces the ceiling in a way that makes his head look too large. And then with his shoulders and neck stiff, he sort of wobbles side to side. There's a yellow clamshell lamp glowing in the corner of his living room. Every time I watch you, Victor, you figure out someone's watching. 30, 40 seconds and you're at the window, wiping at the mist, eyes searching.
For any of these stories to make any sense, there's something you're gonna have to know about me. I lucid dream a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot. There were periods of time when I would lucid dream every night, for months, maybe years, I don't know. I heard a radio program on Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell when I was just a kid. There was a guest talking about lucid dreaming tricks, how to break free, how to fulfill your fantasies and your dreams. The advice was stuff like checking things in real life to see if they don't add up in the dream world, you know, getting in the habit. Things like trying the light switch, noticing whether or not something's weird about it, reading and rereading signs, make sure the words don't move around on you. I still have kind of an unhealthy relationship with light switches. I'd imagine what I could do if I could just master lucid dreaming. The man on the radio suggested things like being with a beautiful woman in a sports car. I was 10 years old when I heard this and I didn't really think it was so imaginative. He also mentioned flying, which at least on that point we were in agreement on. What I wanted to do was to hear things that didn't exist in the world to hear. I wanted to see colors that you couldn't see. Hear ultrasonic, see infrared, I wanted to live full lives in a single night. I wanted to grow up and die in my dreams, then wake up again. first lucid dream I ever had wasn't much. Still a kid. I was sitting cross-legged on the kitchen floor, big black and white tiles across it. The refrigerator looked like a cartoon. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was my favorite movie at the time. I looked across the floor and I saw something moving across one of those black tiles. It was dark, blended into the tile. It jerked forward and a fear shot through me. I stood up quickly, and as I did, the room around me faded into a highway, where I was now standing in this grassy retention pond medium between the two highway directions. It was a sunny day, blue sky, green grass, lush trees lining the road. There was a sign, a big green road sign with bold white lettering, but the words, they didn't make sense, I couldn't understand it, they kept changing on me. I realized suddenly that it wasn't real. 
I realized I was in a dream and what a blissful feeling that was. I felt totally free. And just like that, I woke up. I was sucked out of the dream, back into the darkened bedroom. The dog was laying on the floor, snoring lightly. I was so excited. I didn't realize what a curse this would become.
I'm standing in the library with you. You can hear the turning of newspaper pages. People talking softly. There's a man standing beside me. He's looking in the crime section now. He reaches to pick up a book. Opens it. Leaves through a few pages. Then puts it back on the shelf. He's wandering off to the right. Pick up the book he looked at. It's on the third shelf down. It's called Dreams of Darkness by Reginald Hill. I'm opening it to page 88. She set off back at a brisk pace in a rutted and muddy lane about a furlong from the house. She thought she heard a sound ahead of her. She paused. She could hear nothing, but her straining eyes caught a movement in the gloom. Someone was approaching. A foot splashed in a puddle. Sometimes when you read things, it seems like you're remembering them. Close the book. Put it back to where you found it. Go to the right. Walk past the main desk. Through the turnstile. One of the librarians recognized her from the photograph. Now up the stairs. The art and music library is to the right. See the paint peeling off the ceiling? It's quite beautiful. It looks like sculpture. Careful, don't let the door slam. I started these recordings as a way to remember to make life seem more real. I can't explain it. But then the voice became someone else, a separate person hovering in front of me like a ghost. Sit down at the end of the table. I'll go get the book. Wait here. have been signed out. The book that I was looking for has a picture of this room, the way it used to be. The old museum cases lining the walls, filled with specimens and stuffed birds. The head of a polar bear, with its mouth open, growling. There's a book on the table here. It's on René Magritte. Here's a painting I just saw in New York, The Menaced Assassin. It's kind of creepy. 
Someone's left a note between the pages. Someone is following you. There's less time than I thought. Get up and walk towards the door. Down the stairs. Turn to the left. I'm going to go outside. Try to follow the sound of my footsteps so that we can stay together. I'm going to turn right onto Whitechapel High Street. Past the Whitechapel Art Gallery. Past the newsstand. Killer waited an hour. The Kentucky Fried Chicken. There's always something to figure out. I think, even when there isn't, it feels like there's something to figure out. It doesn't matter really if there is or there isn't. The brain's gonna try to do it, try to make those connections anyway. It's a good thing I'm so terrible at retaining information, otherwise I might fall into a more conspiratorial brand of thought. Anyway, what I lack in informational retention, I make up for in spatial awareness. I don't get lost. I've never been lost, and I've had plenty of opportunity. I like to feel a space, the layout, the air, the dust, whatever it is. I'm even good at spaces and dreams. I'm good at retracing where I've been, even when where I've been doesn't make any sense. 
What is all this about, anyway? Is that what you're thinking? That's what I'm thinking. It's not about anything, really, is it? It's just nonsense. The thoughtless connections and the frantic attempts to put the pieces together. But there's nothing here, you know? Just some music from movies I liked. south than ever before on the second level of a two-story apartment building that wrapped around the parking lot like a motel. I had a spot of good luck and got to share a wall with Marcus. Most of my friends had split town years ago. Marcus was the only person I spent any time with anymore. He had a pretty nice TV and didn't mind letting me watch it. Sometimes we'd kill the hours with video games and sometimes we got drunk. Lately, we've been spending time out on the balcony, looking at the woods across the street from our building, enjoying the first few cool breezes that signaled the end of summer. One night in September, we were out there, leaning on the railing. Marcus pulled another Jenny off of the six-pack ring and offered it to me. I waved it away. stayed up for a few more hours, pacing between my living room and the kitchen. When my feet started to get sore, I flopped down face first onto the couch. I mentally reviewed every detail of the conversation until I could just about play the whole damn thing through by memory. Sleep didn't come, which left me alone in the dark to think. I started to get an idea, a real dumb one, even by my standards. At first, I tried to push it away, but the harder I pushed, the stronger it came back. I could have just fallen asleep. Maybe I could have woken up with a clear head and just written the whole thing off. But I wasn't exactly used to going to bed sober, so I had a nice long time to stew in it. And around three in the morning, the whole plan was starting to sound pretty good. And by sunrise, my path was set. I didn't have a shift scheduled at the restaurant, and I had nothing else to do for the rest of the day, so I decided to walk around for a bit. It was the sort of early fall day that made life in this town bearable. Sunlight was thick and warm, and every now and then a breeze would hit you with a breath of cool mountain air. Students were out in full force on the quad, playing frisbee, lying in hammocks, eating lunch on the grass. A couple of adventurous young souls set up a slack line near the dining hall, where 
one of them at a time hopped under the rope and tried to walk between the two trees. Everyone else waited for their turn, laughing and joking, most of them wearing big plastic sunglasses with dark lenses and pastel-colored frames. I watched for a while in the shade of the student union. Before long, I started feeling out of place, and I was getting hungry anyway, so... I walked over to the burger joint and got a couple of chili cheese dogs. Chili was bland. The cheese was a slice of American laid over the bun, but for $3.50 I couldn't complain. Once I finished eating, I gathered up my things and started to leave, but something on the table caught my eye. It was a glossy little card, about six by five inches, and it had been sitting under my plate. On one side was an elaborate yellow and black design over a white background. It was hard to tell what the design was supposed to be. It looked like a firework exploding out of a brick wall. On top of that design were four words. Stop stressing. Start living. I flipped it over. On the back, there was a block of black text in a warm and inviting font over a white background. Life can be stressful. We all know it. And school doesn't always help. It's easy to feel overwhelmed, even a few short weeks into the new semester. A lot of people will say that you need to take time for yourself, but who in the world has time for that? It's impossible to stop time, but it's not impossible to find fulfillment in a crazy world. Don't believe us? Stop by the E.F. Wyatt Auditorium this Sunday at 11.30 and find out. Nothing on the card told me what I would find if I showed up. But underneath the text was a small white plus sign inside of an orange circle. Something about it looked familiar. But I didn't give it another thought. I left the card on the table and threw away my trash. Bridgefield is two three-story brick buildings facing each other balconies on each floor. In between the two buildings is a parking lot of uneven pavement, splintered with cracks from one end to the other, the result of a sinkhole that happened two years ago and never really got dealt with. The city rebuilt the lot, but that rotten ground is still down there, just waiting to implode. I scoped out a good vantage point in the parking lot, found a car to lean up against, and I waited. I checked my watch. 9.30. I tried to focus for as long as I could, but after a while I got bored and took out my phone. Turns out the only good game I had on there was Snake. Still good for killing a little time. Check my watch. It's 11 o'clock. My feet were itching and my mind was starting to wander. I stayed put for a few more minutes until it hit me that I hadn't used the bathroom since I left my apartment. By 11, my feet were itching and my mind started to wander. To hell with it, I decided. I started out across the parking lot.
maybe some faith would do me good I don't know what I'm doing, don't know so I changed my mind, I can't decide There's too many variations to consider Nothing I do, don't do nothing But bring me more to do, it's true I do And be my blue one to myself, I make it bitter
1978, a Silver Lake resident discovered a can of film in his basement. In the movie, a young man holds a note in front of the camera. It reads, no one will ever be happy here until all the dogs are dead. He then shoots himself in the head with a pistol. Man was an inspiring actor who saw himself as the next Douglas Fairbanks. He was said to have been jealous of animals, specifically citing a deep contempt for Teddy the Wonder Dog. He resented the dog's success and blamed all dogs for his failed life. National Bank of Toontown. Back in those days, me and Teddy liked working in Toontown. Thought it was a lot of laughs. Anyway, this guy got away with a zillion simoleons. <laughs> Trailing to a little dive down on Yoxa Street. Went in. Only he got the drop on us. Literally. Dropped the piano on us from 15 stories. Broke my arm. Teddy never made it. I never did find out who that guy was. All I remember was him standing over me laughing with those burning red eyes and that high squeaky voice. He disappeared into Toontown after that.
listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Where you can also find a full playlist information about anything you're hearing. We're listening to noirs, noir-inspired music tracks, interviews, stories, dreams, and noirs this hour. Filling in for Olivia and Radio Ravioli. My name is Adrian. Hearing Anabon before that was Enigma by, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, a cavernous and yantra. Before that, On the Bound, Fiona Apple. Clips from Yana Windren's Energy Field, Apex Twin, number seven. And before that, a, um, a walking tour of the Whitechapel Library by Janet Cardiff, The Missing Voice, Case Study B, library scene. A track from uh, Miles Davis' score for Elevator to the Gallows. Before that, from One Car Wise Fallen Angels, The Killer's Death. Uh, before that was Beach House Space Song, Superstar, Sonic Youth's cover of Superstar. Track from from the 1981 film Body Heat. I'm burning up. And we're Julie Cruz Summer Kisses Winter Tears. And we're about to go into uh, Marilyn Dietrich singing in the film Stage Fright. I'm the laziest girl in 
taken to bring home the bacon. And if I'm alone and forsaken, it's simply because I'm the laziest girl in
We can go to court and we can prove it was suicide. Oh, can we? Mr. Norton, the first thing that struck me was that suicide act. Only I dumped it into the waste paper basket just three seconds later. You know, you uh, ought to take a look at these statistics on suicide sometime. You might learn a little something about the insurance business. Mr. Keyes, I was raised in the insurance business. Yeah, in the front office. Come now, you've never read an actuarial table in your life, have you? Why, we've got ten volumes on suicide alone. Suicide by race, by color, by occupation, by sex, by seasons of the year, by time of day. Suicide, how committed? By poison, by firearms, by drowning, by leaps. Suicide by poison, subdivided by types of poison, such as corrosive, irritant, systemic, gaseous, narcotic, alkaloid, protein, and so forth. Suicide by leaps, subdivided by leaps from high places, under the wheels of trains, under the wheels of trucks, under the feet of horses, from steamboats. But Mr. Norton, of all the cases on record, there's not one single case of suicide by leap from the rear end of a moving train. And you know how fast that train was going at the point where the body was found? 15 miles an hour. Now, how can anybody jump off a slow-moving train like that with any kind of expectation that he would kill himself? No, no soap, Mr. Norton. We're sunk, and we'll have to pay through the nose, and you know it. May I have this? Come on, Walter. Next time, I'll rent a tuxedo. Oh, you wear it dark, but how? 
Sometimes you look at it, your looking changes it. You can't know the reality of what happened or what would have happened if you hadn't have stuck in your own goddamn schnoz. So there is no what happened. called, but I had to shake the weasels. 
I'm sorry about the trouble in the bar. Well, stuffing olives for a living wasn't for me anyway. I'm not big on story. Plot is something I can really take or leave. The illusion of story is a lot more compelling than the story itself. Intrigue that doesn't guarantee a payoff. Ago, my dreams came back. The suffocation, the paralysis, and the exhausting awareness, it's always been there. But after 10, 15 years of managing to wake up, managing to be unharmed, to be alive after every night, eventually it stops being terrifying and instead it becomes more of a vague irritation. They stop being nightmares in a way. But that doesn't mean they don't find ways to trick me here and there, to come back. I woke up in a bed recently, uh, a darkened room with green neon tint on everything. The bed was directly in the center of the room. Brick walls, an open window at one side with a long, thin white curtain blowing softly. The room was about four stories up and the window looked out to an alley. Across that, you could see a fire escape ladder and a couple of windows on the building. They were all darkened, all shuttered, except for one, about a story down. That window was open, blinds pulled mostly up. I could see the floor of the apartment. Old wood looked creaky. It was illuminated by a television that must have been on the wall beside the window because I couldn't see the TV itself, only the shadow it cast across the room. I could see the legs of a man sitting on a couch that must have been pushed against the back wall. Bare legs, no socks. He was shaking his legs a little. I was watching him, trying to look through that window when I suddenly heard a noise in my own room. 
I jerked my head around towards the door. A pang of fear shot down my spine. I froze. My partner, who'd been sleeping in the bed, looked up. He started to sit up on his elbow to ask what was wrong, and just as he did, a figure walked up to the bed and shot him dead. There was a brief moment of grief, terror, sadness, before I realized that this wasn't real, it was a dream. Thank God for the lucidity. Relief, and I was awake, sitting up, sweating, up from a nightmare, back in that same bed in the middle of that same room, partner sleeping soundly, curtains fluttering by the window. I look down through that window into that room with a television. This time, the man is standing. He's wearing white underwear, tight, nothing else. My vantage point makes it so I couldn't see his face, just his body swaying, sort of dancing in the light of that television. I remember something about a dream I'd had, looking out this window. And just with that, the fear shoots through me again. The figure comes through the bedroom door. My partner sits up, groggy, and bang. This happens over and over again. I realize it's not real. I wake up in the room with the neon glow and the bed in the middle, curtain in the window, blowing in the wind. The only thing that changes is that man in his underwear. I never see his face, but he's always dancing or shaking or swaying, some kind of silent movement. The dancing never seems to be joyful, more like a desperate compulsion, a tragic waltz. I watch. I sit up in that bed, and I wonder who he is, what he's doing. I don't like him, somehow. And I know something's not right about the room. I search my memory for a second to figure out where I might actually be, that exercise I used to do in lucid dreaming. But I'm not totally convinced it's a dream. There's just a sense of unreality to it. A sense that things aren't quite what they seem. There's a lover in the story, but the story's still the same. 
There's a lullaby for suffering and a paradox to blame. But it's written in the scriptures and it's not some idle claim. You want it darker. We kill the flame. They're lining up the prisoners and the guards are taking aim. I struggled with some demons, they were middle class and tame. I didn't know I had permission to murder and to maim. You want it darker?
south. There was no veering, it was a straight course. And uh, halfway out over the bay, and uh, so I never seen anything like that. There were portholes. I saw portholes of light coming out of the portholes. The winter of 2011 in Chicago had one of the worst snowstorms on record. The doctor's office where I worked was closed for a few days, even the ale had to stop running for a minute. The ale never stops running. The snow felt like it was a story high. I'm sure that's an exaggeration, but that's what it felt like. That winter had been haunted by all the dreaming. The snow didn't help the situation much. That winter I was waking up every hour, every night. Some combination of sleep paralysis, sleep apnea, night terror. I had a lot of dreams that would end with flooding. I'd stop breathing or be unable to breathe. I know I was dreaming, that's the worst part. I knew the water wasn't real. I knew, was excruciatingly aware that I had a body, a real life body somewhere. I didn't know if that body was breathing or not. But I couldn't get myself to breathe in the dream, no matter how much I knew it was a dream. And I couldn't get myself to wake up, either. Every night, things went on like this. I'd eventually wake up, usually. Often because of the crack of a radiator, someone yelling outside, a little tap on the window from some particularly aggressive piece of ice. I'd wake up out of breath, terrified. More often than not, I was paralyzed for a few seconds, stuck staring at whatever I happened to be facing at the time. I'd try to call out, I'd try to focus on my fingers, the leg. Eventually I'd move, eventually I'd breathe, eventually. The night of the big snowstorm, I went through these processes about half a dozen times. I dream a lot about the same locations. These days, I find myself often in this underground mall this mall with escalator upon escalator upon escalator leading to different sections of the mall to food courts, abandoned movie theaters. But back then it was the parking lot of a now abandoned attraction in Orlando called Mystery Fun House. The place was part arcade, some mini golf, a mirror maze, a haunted house, lots and lots of animatronic creatures and characters. It was a pretty popular venue for birthday parties in the area. The entrance to Mystery Fun House included a huge animatronic wizard that hung 
loomed, maybe, above the main doors. He sort of moved around. I think his mouth might have opened sometimes. He waved a wand. The dreams I was having in that parking lot varied. It wasn't like a reoccurring dream, not the same events or anything. More like different plays on the same stage. That particular night, I was stuck in that common loop of mine, where I'd be standing in the parking lot, become lucid, and then on realizing that I'd lose control of my body. Or maybe I'd lose my body altogether. In either case, the result was that I'd sort of collapse into the concrete, like a skin suit. I'd start sinking into the pavement, like it was cartoon quicksand. I'd know I was dreaming, so I'd try to just be patient with it, let it happen. I'd long since learned that some very powerful, if not invisible, part of myself really didn't want my conscience having any control over the dreams. So I'd sink into the pavement until it came into my mouth, and into my nose, and into my throat and my lungs, and I'd stop breathing. I waited in the pavement. Waited to wake up again. I tried to get myself to wake up. That didn't always work, so I'd just try to get myself to be calm. The little exercise I'd do is try to remember where my body was in waking life. What bed I was in these days, where I lived. You lose track of those kind of details from waking life. I'd misplace myself a lot, trying to remember was a good way to stay calm when my lungs were heavy with some kind of imaginary asphalt or concrete or water or snow or whatever it may be. Sometime during this process, I started to hear music. My real eyes opened. I still wasn't breathing, which was a little unusual, but happened sometimes. But somehow more alarming than that, that animatronic wizard was in the room with me now. It was in that little apartment with me. That apartment above the pizza place, with the ceiling that breathed. It had come from the dream, and it stayed in the room. It was kind of like a shadow looming in the corner of the bedroom. It wasn't fully formed. Textured, bigger than the room. Almost like it was pulling on the walls, melting into the ceiling, fusing with the stack of books that I had that ran from the floor almost up to the ceiling. I stared at it a while. I tried to pull myself from the sleep paralysis. I tried to breathe. I tried to look away, see if it would leave if I didn't look at it. It stayed. My body finally jerked inhaled out of the dream but that wizard was still there I sat up it was still there when I looked at it it was like the wizard moved I'd never had something from a dream stay with me for that long the texture of the wizard finally sort of faded back into the wall it just became shadows Shadows of branches, paint spots on the wall, stains. I had a headache. I put on a coat, boots, stepped outside into the blizzard, tried to clear out the headache.
starring and spectacularly directed by Orson Welles. Although volumes have been written about this movie, the story of its creation deserves repeating. It's a lesson in how greatness often happens by accident in this business. The legacy of this film, in fact, its very existence, is due to one man, Charlton Heston, which is kind of hard to swallow because in my heart of hearts, I wish he wasn't in it. But Heston was at the peak of his career in the late 1950s, between the massive success of 1957's The Ten Commandments and what would be his Oscar-winning performance in 1959's Ben-Hur. Every producer in town wanted to snag him for a project, including Albert Zugsmith, the contract producer at Universal. Among the many projects he pitched to Heston was a crime potboiler called Badge of Evil, based on a novel by Whit Masterson, the pseudonym of San Diego-based writing partners Robert Wade and Bill Miller. Screenwriter Paul Monash had adapted it for the screen, and Zugsmith had already lined up Orson Welles to portray the film's villain, a corrupt border town police captain. At this point, Welles' chance of ever directing another Hollywood film were zero. His reputation for overly ambitious ideas and profligate spending had made him a pariah. Either none of us got picked and we're all screwed, or great, and I'm gonna go, so I'm gonna go fishing this summer.
do anything. <laughs> uh, anyway, when I was a teenager, <laughs> uh, we could walk to town. We could walk to town, and uh, back then you could you could do anything. And not,
Melvin Van Peoples. Uh, sweet, Sweetback's Badass song. Theme from that. Before that, uh, Never Seen a Girl Like Me Before. Then a track from 2814. Then part of the score from the new movie, Crimes of the Future. Howard Shore does a lot of the scores for Cronenberg movies. Leonard Cohen's You Want It Darker. Helios, before that, as well as a couple of stories, dreams and otherwise. Farah, You Make Me Want to Die. Kavinsky, Night Call, the movie Drive. A couple of tracks from uh, an album released by Cities and Memory, a podcast and group working on field recordings and remixes from their album Future Cities, Between Two Bridges. Before that was Martha Wash, Two Tons of Fun, Taking Away Your Space. I love that song. Coming up to the end of my time here this afternoon, I'm playing, listening to noirs, neo-noirs, neon-noirs, lucid dreams, clips from a lot of movies. Um, if you want to know what any of those are, you can visit the playlist for today's show, wfmu.org. Filling in for Olivia's Radio Ravioli. My own shows are under the Blind Tourist on WFMU. Find it there, too. Lots of clips from different noirs, different movies. Stuff sent to me from friends, acquaintances. Whatever I could find that sort of fit into this vibe of uh, that kind of sort of noir feeling of trying to figure something out that maybe doesn't want to be figured out or even isn't there to be figured out. Dreamy, dreamy puzzles that don't quite fit together, but they really feel like they do. Thanks for joining me. This is WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Enjoy the rest of your Monday.
Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, coming at you live from downtown Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. For those of you listening via podcast in the future, I want you to remember this is live radio. This goes out over the FM signal across uh, parts of New Jersey and, and New York State. And then the station puts it together as a podcast for your listening pleasure afterwards. So this is live radio, and I'm very happy to be here. And as we do sometimes on this show, we cover a topic of immediate interest. This is not one of the evergreen shows, although maybe this will be one that we listen to in future seasons to see how things turned out. But the, the, the concern about tonight's show is one that is timely. It has to do with where things are headed right now in Congress. And I need to explain, um, don't, uh, don't turn your dial because I said the word Congress. <laughs> this, the topic is very important to all of us. Uh, and, and in fact, well beyond the United States as well, because what is happening in the United States Congress right now is a culmination of what this show has been talking about now for almost five years. And I'm, I'm going to explain. Uh, let me just read you the description of the show that I put. We, we, we have a little upcoming list for, for upcoming shows here at WFMU. And I wrote a little blurb for this evening's show. That I, gave a, I gave a title to tonight's show called Our Last Chance to Defeat Big Tech for a While. And here's what I wrote. Congress is bringing the fight to big tech. Three bills in Congress, all bipartisan, would help rein in big tech's unethical behavior. But if the bills don't pass in the next month, we may not have another chance for years, if ever, to fight big tech. And uh, here I am to explain this. So I uh, very much appreciate you joining me for this episode because I want to break down why this is an important moment, what the bills are, what's at stake, and what, or in one case at least, who is standing in the way of progress, who is the one-man logjam that is keeping us from doing obviously the right thing to rein in these beasts. And I, I, I was thinking as I came over, how do you describe the problem? <laughs> if this is your first time listening to Tectonic, let me give you a little refresher. Um, we are fighting big tech giants on this show, uh, among other things. It's not the only thing we do. But these, uh, and how you count who's the big tech, who qualifies as a big tech giant. Some people have different lists, and there, there are, there's some fuzziness in how we discern who's in this list or not. But there are four companies for sure that are always on the list of big tech giants that are having deeply harmful consequences in our economy and our society. Those companies are Google, also known as Alphabet, Facebook, also known as Meta, Amazon, and Apple. And there is 
no coincidence that those are exactly the four companies that I have called out at the end of every single show since I started doing the, uh, the, the standard sign-off, which I started pretty early on in the run of Tectonic. It's those four companies. Um, I identified pretty early on that these, there are a lot of companies that are having harmful effects in our world. But for a technology show, if we got to focus somewhere, we want to focus on those four companies. And uh, I have been saying for years that we have to do something about those companies. And, and let me break down what I mean by do something about it. Uh, you can certainly make an individual choice, as I say in the sign-off, to get off Google, forget Facebook, and avoid Amazon and Apple. You can do that on an individual basis, you can, and, and I hope you will, if you can, uh, delete your Facebook account, delete your Instagram account, delete your WhatsApp account, don't use Amazon, and use all of those services as little as possible. Try to get off Google when and where you can and avoid Apple. I mean, I really mean literally those, those words that I say in the sign-off. However, there's a couple of problems with the sign-off. I want to admit up front. One is that a lot of people can't really get off of Google. They can't really delete their Facebook account because let's say, for instance, you have family overseas and this is the only way they can use the internet. Let's say they live in the Philippines and because of the um, toxic deal that Facebook did directly with Rodrigo Duterte with, with um, the quote-unquote free uh, Facebook basics account out in the Philippines, any family you have in the Philippines may not be able to communicate with you unless they communicate with you through Facebook. And so deleting your Facebook account would then cut off your, your communications mode with those family members. That's not, a, that's not a great decision, obviously.